Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? This is What You've Been Playing Wednesday, and this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Mozart Games, The Tabletop Bellhop, The Meeple Dungeon, Board on the Air, Meeple and the Moose, Board and Game with Andrew B. Dice and Dragons. And Cardboard Conjecture. And as always, please take the time and have a look at the links to the cast of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And, uh, yeah, enjoy! Hey there, this is Chris Morris from Mozart Games, once again for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. You can find me on Twitter as SpiderMo, that's spider with a Y, if you want to give me a follow for some board game thoughts, my game design challenges, and just a bunch of random thoughts and feelings. Now this week, I got a chance to play a few games of Fantasy Realms by WizKid Games and designer Bruce Glasgow. And it was originally published in 2017, but seems to have received another lease on life in the last year and regained some of its popularity. I've played it for several years now, picking it up uh, first edition a couple years ago, and have gotten a lot of plays out of the game, but it's also recently found its way back to the table the last few game nights that we've had. Now, for those not familiar with Fantasy Realms, it's a quick-playing card game with a very generic fantasy setting. Players are dealt seven cards to form their starting hands and must try to build the best scoring hand of cards that they can before the game ends. Each card is unique in the game and belongs to one of 11 different suits and will have a base scoring value as well as various ways that it can score additional points if you have certain cards in your hand. On a player's turn, they're going to draw one card either blindly from the top of the deck or any of the previously discarded cards that are on the table. They will then discard one card to the center of the table and play proceeds to the next player. The game ends as soon as there are 10 cards that have been discarded by all players, which can happen much faster than anyone anticipates sometimes. Players will then all reveal their hand of cards and tally up all of the bonuses and penalties that their cards provide with the highest score winning. The cards in the game are all very thematic. The king and queen, for example, will score much better if they're together, and also if there are armies that also happen to be in your hand. Some cards will blank other cards, meaning that they score nothing and cannot contribute to other combos, so you need to be very careful with those cards. For example, the rainstorm will blank all flame cards that you have, except for lightning, which scores a bunch of points if those two are paired together. It's these combos that both make the game great and extremely frustrating. If you see a couple of them in your starting hand, you're going to do well and set yourself up with a plan for the game. However, if you get a hand of disconnected cards, you're going to struggle. With winning scores that generally fall between 150 to 200 points, you could think that you're doing well, but then your opponent will reveal a hand that is just perfect, destroying your hopes and your dreams. The game generally plays very quickly, but players can control the pace, as every time that a card is drawn from the deck instead of the discard area, the game gets that much closer to ending. This can be extremely painful if you're not seeing anything that works for you being discarded, as you're also speeding up the end game, meaning that you have less time to find any kind of decent combo. Many times, it can actually take longer to do the end game scoring of the cards than it took to actually play the game in the first place. There's a fair amount of text on the cards, and juggling your hand of seven cards and trying to see how they both combo together, as well as with all the cards that get discarded, can be a bit of information overload for some players. With one draw or discard by an opponent, you could completely change your entire game, and this can be frustrating to some players. Fantasy Realms is a game that I really want to love, but I always find that it falls short for me. 
short in terms of playtime, and short in terms of the enjoyment that I get out of the game. I often feel like the game plays me, and I have little control over what my endgame scoring is. I've had games where I had a near-perfect combo in my starting hand, so all I did on my turns was draw a card from the deck and immediately discard it, hoping to run the clock out on my opponents. I really wish that there was more control over how the game plays, and that you could make decisions that could have longer-lasting effects. But that's not what Fantasy Realms is trying to do. I want ways to control what I draw to some degree, like being able to name a suit and draw cards until I get one of them, or forcing all players at the table to play a card or two in front of them, freezing them for the rest of the game, giving you an idea of what everybody else is trying to achieve. But most of all, I just want the game to be more. More meat on the bone and more of an experience. Instead of it playing in 10 to 15 minutes, I want it to be a game that goes for 30 to 45 minutes, allowing more strategy to develop. I love the concept of draw a card and discard a card, but having all this information in front of you each and every round gets frustrating, as you might keep a card thinking that it works perfectly with this other one you have in your hand, and then completely miss the fact that it actually hurts two or three other cards that you have, delaying your strategy. It happens more often than not for various players. Fantasy Realms is a game that I always want to play out, uh, pull out and play, but then I feel like I cheated myself out of something more afterwards. It was actually this game and these faults that inspired me to design one of my own games, building on the concepts of Fantasy Realms and making it into something much deeper and richer, in my own humble opinion. Fantasy Realms was nominated for the Kennerspiel de Jar last year, along with Lost Ruins of Arnak, but both lost out to Paleo, which really raised its profile in the industry. I was pretty shocked that it was up for the award, both as I didn't think that it really fit into the category all that well, plus it was a game that was actually released four years previously. But I guess it got a wider distribution last year in Europe, which qualified it. Now, if you haven't played this yet, definitely give it a try, as it is a short enough game that you should totally give a chance to try out. And if you have tried it, send me your thoughts on Twitter, as I'd love to hear what others think. Am I way out in left field, or do you see, feel the same way about Fantasy Realms? So thanks for listening to my thoughts this week. Once again, I am Chris Morris. You can find me on Twitter as Spidermo. if you'd like to give me a follow for some of my insights and my gaming preferences. Happy gaming, everyone, and may all your dice rolls be critical successes. Hello and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, working with you to make your game nights better. Since I missed last week, I'm going to cover two weeks of gaming today, starting with a game of Yardmaster with the extended family. And we played two four-player games and it went over really well. It was the first time my sister-in-law had played Yardmaster and she really enjoyed it. Now one thing we were talking about while playing this game was how good it would be to take on vacation or out to the cottage or in a cabin, um, which was one of our recent podcast topics. Now this game is almost perfect, except for how long your train can get, especially if you choose to build with low-value cars. But we came up with a solution that sadly we'll never see, but I would love to see, and that's a travel version of Yardmaster that uses the card size from Space Base. I would pick that up in a minute. Next up was a rare Tuesday game night where we finally finished off our Charterstone campaign. Now this last game was a ton of fun and very competitive. We all really liked the restriction added in that last game. It made things very interesting for us and interacted well with the goals we happened to have up that game. Now this was our highest scoring game to date and I actually managed to pull off a win due to 26 endgame scoring points. Now after this, it was time to figure out who won our campaign. What was most interesting here is that the players in first and second, which were Kat and Deanna, actually won the least games during the campaign, with Kat only winning two and Deanna only winning one. Now most shocking to me was the fact that Deanna came in second, since she totally played differently than the rest of us. For her, it was all about the long game, and she didn't worry at all about her individual game scores. And actually, the one she won was basically just a fluke. While it didn't get her the win overall, I think the fact she managed to come in second is somewhat fascinating. 
Now, a little bit more about Charterstone in a second. Now, Wednesday, I snuck in a couple solo plays of Hellbringer, which I wanted to get in before our live show that night. Now, during that podcast, we did up a full preview of the game, and I think it's worth checking out. Now, this is a game that shows a lot of promise and was quite fun, how it is, despite some rulebooks, mechanics, and translation issues. Again, thanks to the uh, designer for helping me get through those. Now, Hellbringer is a roguelike card game inspired by Diablo that will be launching soon on Kickstarter. And I think this is going to be worth watching. Uh, and probably worth backing for many of you. Now, Saturday night, we returned to Charterstone again with Tori and Kat. Yes, at this point, our campaign was done. But when you finish a campaign of Charterstone, similar to Risk Legacy, you end up with a playable game that is completely unique to your group. Now, on tonight's live show, I'm going to be doing a full review of Charterstone. And before that, I wanted to give that final game at least one shot. We wanted to see how it played, and so I can let people know how replayable Charterstone is once you finish the campaign. Now, while it would be awesome if you joined us for that review, I will spoil it a bit here and say that finished game after we're done our campaign was interesting, but without the stakes of the legacy game and the campaign behind it, it just wasn't all that engaging. Yeah, it all works. Like, Charterstone still worked, and the rule changes made sense, and they did some things to keep it very well balanced, but there just wasn't any real joy in winning. It was just, hey, I won a game of Charterstone. I didn't get anything new. I didn't get to unlock anything. You don't get to carry more things over to the next game. It's just done. You played Charterstone. Now you could play again. I can't see playing a lot more games of that unless we get the reboot kit and start over. Now, next, we showed Tori and Kat the Herb Witches expansion for the Quacks of Quedlinburg, which they loved. Uh, they agree that Herb Witches is pretty much a must-have expansion for Quacks, which adds a lot of new elements to the game, including some much-needed randomness mitigation. Now, finally, Saturday night, Deanna and I sat down for a 3C date night. Uh, the 3Cs are cardboard, craft beer, and charcuterie. Now, it's been a while since we've done one of these, but this is a new tradition we started in the time of COVID when we were stuck at home and couldn't game with anyone else. Now, as far as the cardboard part goes, which is what I think you'll all be interested in, we started off by learning a game called Revolution of 1828. This is a two-player, historic, Steffenfeld game published by Renegade Games. While I have to admit we played Extreme the first two times Bellhop's rule was totally in play, uh, the first time we totally forgot that when you take an Elector you get an extra turn, and the second time we messed up what one of the tiles meant. But overall, we still had fun, even though we messed it up and we did play a third time. We ended up playing three times in a row, which actually doesn't happen often with us. Now, for those who don't know it, Revelation, Revolution of 1828 is an abstract tile drafting game that ends up being basically a big tug of war as you try to collect votes in different electoral regions, as well as um, vying for the attention of the press, which you don't want. You don't want the press to be paying attention because one of the things you're going to be doing is collecting smear campaigns. Now, those count as support in any region. They're basically wild cards, but if the press notices you, you end up having to give those votes to your opponent. Now, while the theme didn't really matter to us as Canadians, it's not a, a historical election that for the U.S. president doesn't matter that too much to us. But you know what? The gameplay, the mechanics here are really solid. And I've got to say, this is probably the easiest to learn Steffenfeld game we've ever played, and I could teach you to play it in minutes. But like any good abstract strategy game, learning to play well is an entirely different thing. Now, after Revolution, which was a bit more brain-burny than we expected, once we had the rules down, it just did, there was a lot more going on in pre-planning. There was a definite chess-like element. Uh, we wanted to relax a bit, so we chilled out with a few games of The Game from Pandasaurus. Now, Friday night, we got our best, sorry, it was Saturday night. Saturday night, we got our best score so far in the game, getting down to one card. We are so close to finally winning at two players, but still not there yet, which is one of the things that keeps us coming back. Now, besides all these physical plays, I also finished up a digital play of Res Arcana. Uh, this is a game everyone seems to love, and I'm not getting it, and I think it's just that I'm not crocking it on Board Game Arena. I think I really need to sit down with a physical copy of this game and touch the pieces and see how they interact and actually see what my opponents are doing before ever playing this one again, because right now it's been a total flop. Now, we also finished up a very close game of the Castles of Burgundy, where the final scores were all within two points of each other. I thought I had that one for sure. 
and a couple rounds of Space Space, which Deanna, Sean, and I have been keeping in the rotation and playing on repeat. Actually, we just started a new game today. Well, that's it for what I've been playing. Before I go, I remember to visit tabletopbellhop.com. Join us tonight and every Wednesday night on Twitch at 9 p.m. Eastern for our live podcast recording, and look for us on your podcatcher of choice or YouTube if you can't join us live. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzno. Good day and game on. It's Anna Marie and Rob from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And again, that's the last you'll hear from Rob today as his voice is still healing up. So <laughs> you got me again. So today I'm going to talk about a couple games that we've been playing quite a bit over the last uh, couple weeks now. Uh, the first game is the Disney's Sorcerer's Arena, Epic Alliances, and this is published by The Op. It is a skirmish game uh, where you can play head-to-head, -head, so one or two players. Um, they do have an option where you can go two to four, you team up together, but we haven't played that one. So we're just going to talk about the one versus one today. And on this game, you have uh, you basically choose uh, three characters that you can play with, and you can they can be heroes, they can be villains. In the core set, uh, you get uh, you can choose from Mickey, the Sorcerer's Apprentice Mickey, from Gaston, Maleficent, Aladdin, Ariel, Doctor Facilier, Demona, and Sully. And we haven't played with all of them yet. We will get there, but. Uh, uh, you're you basically choose which three characters you want to play with it's uh, the board is just you got a bunch of hexes on the board and you have a set of cards for each character and you shuffle those up and you pull your starting hand is four cards and you go um, your first turn will be with one of your characters and it's always going to go in the same order so if Ari if you have Ariel you'll you can play her first then the next player plays their first character then you'll play your second and your second, so on and so forth. When it's Ariel's turn, uh, you hope you have one of her cards in your hand. Otherwise, you'll just do one of the two basic actions, which are move um, or action. So you can move or hit, basically. So the cards just give you a little bit more variability in the play. And that is all I'm going to say about Sorcerer's Arena. Uh, we'll talk more about it in our next episode of the podcast of the Meeple Dungeon. And uh, we'll have a, a review on it and our thoughts and a little bit more on the gameplay. Uh, the next game I'm going to talk about is Dead Reckoning. And that is published by AEG, a good old pirate game. So in this one, it's a 4X style game. Uh, where you've got your ships and you're moving out, exploring different parts of the waters. Um, you can change, uh, you can go into pirate mode where, you know, you can attack or if somebody comes and interacts with you, um, they basically will start uh, an attack because you're a pirate. And you are, um, it's a card building game. So you've got the same amount of cards in your deck. Uh, throughout the game but you're going to be building up each of those cards with upgrades and so you're physically adding things to the cards um, in sleeves and it's really neat because it gives you different uh, different playability every game so there's a lot of variability in that uh, and yeah you're basically just going around you're um, you know fighting trying to plunder other pirate ships you're trying to get gold and cargo from the different islands and playing uh playing through uh straight through like that so again we are going to be uh we're going to be recording on that for the following episode of our podcast and we'll go again into more detail on how that one plays and our thoughts um do a full review of that but i'm just going to keep it uh short and sweet for now but that is uh, dead reckoning a good old pirate uh pirate ship game so that's all i'm gonna go with today sorry it's so short but we'll have a better episode uh, next week when rob can hopefully talk a little bit more but for now it's been anna marie from the meeple dungeon and we will see you next week uh.
Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon, and this is What Have You Been Playing? On tonight's episode, or today's episode, we are talking about... El Grande. The original area control game. Uh, this is a game that a lot of people t talk about. It's in the top 100. Lots of good reviews. Everybody talks about it being the granddaddy of area control games. When we played it, or when I looked at the video for it, I was amazed at how simple it seemed. Yeah, like, I had no prep going into it, and I picked it up really quick. Which, not that I don't pick up games decently quick, but... <laughs> it, it really, you know, on your turn, you play a card, and depending on who plays the highest card, that's who gets to pick one of the five actions, yeah. or action cards in front of you. And that's going to give you the ability to put down anywhere from one to five workers on the board. Or one to five guys. I forget what they call them. They're Caliberos. Or... Cab Caballeros, I think is how it's pronounced. Churros! Yeah, churros. <laughs> one to five churros. Uh, and it's going to give you a special power. Uh, yeah. You can do those actions in any order. Uh, and sometimes it benefits you to put the people down first. Sometimes it benefits you to do the action first. Yeah. So... The action selection is basically like, you, as you said, it's an auction. So you're like, oh, I'm going to play my high cards to go first or my low cards to go last. The trick is, if you play your lower cards, you only have a set amount of guys in your pool to put out. So the lower cards you play, the more guys you add into that pool to be able to play later. Yeah, you have your reserve and then you have your people you are able to put out on the board. Uh, and as you said, you know, the cards are 1 to 13. 13 allows you to move nobody across, where 1 gives you 6 guys. Yeah. And you start with 7. So it's this balancing act of when when do I play those cards to get the guys over? Because a lot of those action cards are mean. Oh, yeah. Like, the, big, the yeah. big one that happened to our game was second last round. I got the I got to pick the action card, and what it did was send all guys in your guys' reserve to your provinces, so you didn't have any guys to put out that round. Yeah, so anybody that we could use, we couldn't anymore. Uh, it's played over nine rounds. You score every third round, and every third round you're scaring, doing area control through all of the areas on the board. And I think there's about nine of them. There's a castle, which you can put people in, but you have to tell everybody yeah. how many you're it's, putting in there. It's more hidden than anything else. So you, it's all by memory. And yeah. then you lift it, you see who wins, and then everyone has chosen beforehand on a wheel where those guys are going to be marching to. Yeah, so it, it can really turn an, a, an area, because you can't split them up. But, you know, if you put four or five guys in the castle, that can take over an area pretty quickly. Oh, yeah. Uh, all the areas are anywhere from four to six. Seven. Eight points, I think, was the highest. With... Seven was natural, and then you get to eight with some of the bonus powers. Yeah. And Portugal's on the board, which you can add stuff or scoring to, or else it scores nothing. Uh, some areas first, second, and third score. Some areas just first and second. And some areas just first. Yep. And the trick about scoring is that if you tie, both players get the lower points. So if two people tie for third, they both get nothing. Yeah. It's really cutthroat in that there's a lot of cards that make you move stuff, make you take people off the board, that type of idea. Negate actions. None of it, I would say, is directed at a specific person, which is what I liked about it. Yeah. Because if I do something that's going to hurt somebody, it's going to hurt everybody at but the you. board, usually not you. Sometimes it does hurt you too. Yeah, like there's a few that are like, pick a space, everyone everyone picks a space, and then they take their guys off that space that they choose. Yeah, uh, so I like that about the game. Uh, I like the scoring on the game. Uh, the one thing I would say that I didn't like is that going into the final round or the final scoring, I was pretty sure I was out of that game. Yeah, basically after the second scoring, I was pretty sure it was just me and Norm that were left. Yeah, there's no real catch-up mechanic, or, you know, in three turns, you can't get enough people on that board to change your End game. outlook. Yeah, if you're 
falling back early, it's hard to catch back up. Yeah. Unless you just have a big swing. Yeah, and Norm did have a bunch of expansions. He had the El Grande big box. But all we did was base game. Uh, Maybe some of those expansions changed that up. Yeah. I'm I'm not sure. I know it brings in a lot more cards, a lot more different actions and stuff like that. Asymmetricness. Some asymmetricness. So if we do get it to the table again, I'm curious to try some of those. Mm Mm-hmm. Something that also might have helped you is if you didn't score Norm's territory instead of yours. Yeah, there is there is uh, reading involved. It's not language independent, and I misread what territory I was in and scored Norm's instead of mine. Uh, it solid game. Uh, it is pure Euro beautifulness, right? Euro with a bit of hello. Poking. Yeah, there is nothing pretty about this game. It's cubes, it's brown, it's wonderful. Uh, and that's El Grande. I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will talk to you next week. Hello. My name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week only saw one game played, and that was The Great Heartland Hauling Company by Jason Kortoski. The Great Heartland Hauling Company is a clever little game packed into a small box. The rules for Great Heartland Hauling Co. can be distilled into a single card, making it perfect for teaching people who only have a cursory interest in board games. The Great Heartland Hauling Company uses a theme of truckers rushing up and down the American interstate, picking up goods and dropping them off at the next town over for a huge profit. While spending hours driving in one direction may be the bulk of a hauler's job, it's difficult to make an invigorating game about rolling your truck on a straight road through the flat prairies. Luckily, this game doesn't focus on the dozens of brain-melting hours in between truck stops and focuses on the excitement of buying and selling goods and pushing your luck that the correct waybills will appear just when you need them. In Great Heartland Hauling Company, there are two different types of cards available, waybills and gas cards. You can use any number of gas cards to move from one location to another, although your max movement is three, and when your truck ends its move in a city, you may discard waybill cards to either load or unload goods at that location. Once you've moved and loaded, you refill your hand to five cards and your turn is over. It's also important to mention that two trucks cannot exist in the same city at the same time, for long-haul truckers are territorial creatures and are likely to fight with each other in the gas station shower. If you find yourself beginning a turn without any gas cards, you can choose to spend money to move instead. One dollar for every space you want to move, again, maximum of three spots. Be careful not to rely on this, however, as money is also victory points, so you're directly spending your points to move around the board. It's also important to note that you cannot mix gas cards and money for moving. You must choose one or the other for the entire turn. Every location has a pair of goods that they're willing to buy from your truck, as well as the advertised amount that they're willing to pay you for said goods. Should you arrive with the appropriate goods and necessary waybills, you may unload these goods and collect a tidy profit. The first person to hit the money threshold, $30 in a four-player game, triggers the end of the game. The rest of your fellow truckers will get a final turn, and then the money is deducted from each trucker for any goods they've left to spoil in the back of their truck, then the person with the most money is the winner. Great Heartland Hauling Company's small form factor has caused this game to live a life of constantly traveling in my backpack. I'm sure my copy of Great Heartland Hauling Co. has seen more of the British Columbian coast than most of my prairie-saddled family. It's a light game to drop in your pack and simple to pull out at a coffee shop, like when you're in Gibson's and have an hour to kill before the ferry back to Vancouver departs. Also, if you find yourself at a serious coffee table with three others and 90 minutes to burn between a wedding ceremony and a reception, this is a great pick. Pick up and deliver is not a mechanic I often feel drawn towards. Games with this mechanism often just feel like a race without the feeling of momentum or speed. Great Heartland Hauling Company's satisfaction comes from the quick turnaround of picking up goods and being able to deliver them on the very next turn. Although it can be frustrating when you begin your turn with three pig cards, spend all three waybills to get those three pigs onto your truck, and then several turns go by without a single pig appearing for you to pick up again. And that forces you to take those pigs on a countryside tour. One thing that I really appreciate in games is forcing players to make decisions. In Great Heartland Hauling Company, you are forced to move each turn, which also makes you decide if you want to take gas cards or fill your hand with waybills. 
Also, because you cannot exist in the same town as someone else, you may find yourself tripping over one another, squatting in a spot that you know they need to go to, forcing them to delay their paydays by an entire turn. The various locations all offer different values for the goods they're demanding, so you can choose to ferry all all of the corn from one city to the next for $2 per ear, or you can choose to haul it clear across the country where they'll pay you $4 per good. It's double the money, but it's also wildly increased shipping costs. If a game doesn't offer you good or interesting decisions, then why am I even involved? As I alluded to before, this game is simple to teach and play. Because of its small size and easy to learn nature, I'm constantly introducing this game to new players, and even using it to showcase that board games are more than just Monopoly and Connect 4. Because I'm always introducing this to new players, I haven't explored the expansion content that includes player powers and special effects. I look forward to one day exploring those aspects further, but for now, I really enjoy the simplicity of play offered by the base game. One of the ways that I have changed things up a bit is by changing the shape of the map, utilizing one of the, some of the suggested map layouts on one of the cards. Unfortunately, this made Great Heartland Hall and Company feel more of a dreary slog in a hot cabin with no air conditioning. While the idea of having different board layouts is exciting, the shape we chose had two long corridor corridors running nearly parallel with only one space where you could move between the columns. This ended up dragging the game out extensively. We spent way more money to move further as there were less alternative towns to visit when the particular space that we needed to go to was occupied by another player. One time, the economy was so choked due to us spending so much on gas and the highest paying customers being so far away from the goods that they wanted that we were ending up with a net profit of $1 per, per good delivered. This experience really highlighted the limitations of the game and how modifying the root structure made it, made it significantly less fun. I know that sounds really critical, and it is, but this is where I come to grips with my opinion on the Great Harlan Hauling Company. It's a light and easy to teach game that is perfect for introducing people to the hobby. Having said that, it's a bit too late for my regular game group gatherings, so we naturally pass it over in favor for something more complex. Great Heartland Hauling Company is a great game, and it certainly won't be leaving my backpack anytime soon, but it's rarely on the list of games that I am desperate to play again. And that's all I have to talk about this week. If you want to hear more about my thoughts on board games, you can read my reviews over at MeepleNews.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday! Hi, this is Andrew Buckles of BoardingGame.com, and I'm here to talk about what I've been playing. This week, I'm going to talk about the games I played at KublaCon, which is held in a couple hotels near the San Francisco airport and was held over Memorial Day weekend. It's a great convention, one I've been going to since 2016, and this year's edition was particularly special because it was the first time it was held in three years. Over four and a half days, I played 29 games with 20 different people. I'm going to talk about four of those games in a little more detail. First, there's Brewcrafters, a 2013 design by Ben Rossett, published by Dice Hate Me Games, with art by Jackie Davis and graphic design by Chris Kirkman. This remains maybe my favorite worker placement game. It's exceptionally thematic in how you run your brewery, develop new recipes, develop new equipment, and hire unique workers and form local partnerships to help you out. Part of what I like about Brewcrafters is that there are a lot of different strategies to approach the game with and that that also changes from game to game depending on the recipes available and the workers available. I'm a big fan of what Chris Kirkman has done over the years with Dice Hate Me Games, and I was very pleased to hear on a recent The State of Games podcast that he's taking that brand independent again. That company has put out a lot of cool games over the years, including Brewcrafters, Viva Java, and New Bedford, and I'm excited to see more from them in the coming months and years. The next game I'm going to talk about is Imperial Struggle. This is a 2020 release designed by Ananda Gupta and Jason Matthews and published by GMT Games with art by Terry Leeds. Those designers worked together to make Twilight Struggle, and Matthews is also known for several other historical games, including 1960, The Making of the President, 1989, Dawn of Freedom, Founding Fathers, and Sola Fide, with many of those being co-designs with other people. 
My friend Andrew Heim taught me this game, which was great and really appreciated, and we played in a ninth floor convention space reserved for historical games, which was the first time I had checked that out. That was a very cool feature of this convention. As for Imperial Struggle itself, it covers the clashes between Britain and France around the world in the 18th century. I wasn't quite sure how much I would like Imperial Struggle going in, as I like Twilight Struggle, but I don't love it. But for me, Imperial Struggle is a game that's more suited to my tastes. It feels like there are more options with the different theaters around the world. There's more of a focus on economics than there is in Twilight Struggle, and that's something that really appeals to me. One thing I thought was cool here was the action selection system, which each turn sees you picking a tile that has a major action in one area of influence and a minor action in another. Those areas include diplomatic, economic, and military. And what's interesting about that is it means that you have to be very selective with what realm you're trying to operate in in a particular point in time. So Imperial Struggle was a lot of fun and I'm glad I played it. The next game I'm going to talk about is Twilight Imperium 4th Edition. The 4th Edition was published in 2017 and is designed by Dane Beltrami, Corey Kaneska, and Christian T. Peterson, with art from Scott Schomburg. It's published by Fantasy Flight Games. We also played with the Prophecy of Kings expansion, which Fantasy Flight published in 2020. Beltrami is the designer there. TI4 is a great epic Space 4X game, one I've always quite enjoyed. It's a long game and a most of the day event, especially with newer players, but it's a lot of fun. This was my first time playing with the Prophecy of Kings expansion, and I like what that added in terms of new races, in terms of exploration, and a few other things. The next game I'm going to talk about is Union Station, a 2022 release designed by Travis Hill, published by New Mill Industries, with art from Daniel Newman. This is a great little cube rails game, which has an interesting twist that there aren't auctions after the initial auction. In this, you acquire shares at their face value price after the auction, but which ones you can acquire at a given point is given by when they come up in the deck. And that makes for a very different spin on cube rails and some interesting moments. There's also a shared union station track, which pays out dividends to every company once at least one share of all the companies has been bought. I discussed this one in more detail back in episode number 40 of What You've Been Playing Wednesday last October. I was also in a playthrough and discussion of this that you can find on the Board Game Gumbo YouTube channel. So that's some of what I played at KublaCon 2022. Thanks to everyone who played games with me, and thanks to everyone involved in putting this con together and making it a great con. You can find me on Twitter at Andrew Buckholtz, B-U-C-H-O-L-T-Z, and you can find my board game writing at boardandgame.com. Thanks for listening. What up, gamers? I'm Jason from Dice and Dragons, and today is What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. Julie and I have been playing Marvel Champions, the new Sinister Motives campaign big box expansion, and unfortunately, we've just been a little busy, so I'm flying solo today, but we really wanted to share our thoughts on the campaign. Now, you'll be able to find our full review of it coming out the day after this is released. In Sinister Motives, you take on the roles of Miles Morales as Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy as Ghost Spider. You're going to be working your way through some of Spider-Man's most famous villains in this campaign. You'll also need to be managing your reputation as the higher it gets in terms of uh, the city liking you, the more uh, support you're going to be getting from the game in is going to include some shield enhancements, even upgrading those enhancements, which is pretty cool. But... If your reputation goes the other way, well, then you're going to start losing those enhancements. Also, the better your reputation is, the more the villains will take you seriously. So there'll be some positive bonuses for the villains as well to kind of balance out the scales. 
Now, just to talk a little bit about Ghost Spider and Miles Morales' uh, pre-constructed decks, we always play the uh, the games for review purposes without changing uh, their decks. And I have to say, well, I do enjoy both characters. I think they have a lot of potential. Uh, so far, I think Ghost Spider, her deck, was the one that worked the best uh, for us. Uh, we weren't the biggest fans of Miles Morales' uh, pre-constructed deck. His Justice deck is pretty cool in terms of what it's able to do, but it focuses a lot on the shield characters and being able to get some discounted shield characters to put into play so that you can use things like the surveillance team or get Dum Dum Dugan and other characters put into play as a discount. But that really didn't fit well with the playstyle. And while we did find that uh, sometimes it just flowed really well, there were definitely games that we were playing that it felt incredibly clunky. Uh, Ghost Spider as a protection character worked very well. Uh, we used the upgrade for her that, that, uh, that her stun opponents. The fact that you're able to uh, untap, uh, essentially unexhaust uh, your character, saying tap there using the term from uh, Magic the Gathering. But... Uh, being able to do that after playing a hero interrupt or response was very cool. Also, the fact that you're able to potentially stun villains every time you're using a basic power is something that I really, really enjoyed. And she's definitely the standout character in terms of the pre-constructed decks. That being said, uh, tweaking the build of Ghost Spider as well as Miles Morales Spider-Man is going to give you a much better play experience. Now, to talk about the campaign, this Unfortunately, it's not our favorite campaign box. I think that uh, right now, Julie and I both still prefer Mad Titan's uh, Shadow as well as Rise of the Red Skull. And the main part about that is it's just uh, the way the uh, the campaign ended. And I'm not going to spoil anything for anyone, but it really felt like the difficulty level had a big jump when we got to the final uh, boss. And that was something that we really didn't quite enjoy with the pre-constructed decks. That being said, if you really enjoy the deck building aspect of Marvel Champions and you're going to build a deck that's going to suit your playstyle, I think this campaign is going to be a lot higher. We really like to focus on what the experience is out of the box in case you're new to the game and maybe you just got the core box and this is the first expansion that you're going to be picking up. I do think that both characters can be modified fairly easily with the contents that are in the core box. So it's not like you need to go out, buy a whole bunch of expansion packs to really tweak these characters and make them uh, even better. Uh, that was the case with uh, Galaxy's Most Wanted, where if you didn't have a nice collection, you really were uh, behind the eight ball for playing that campaign. So in terms of campaign balance and really striking a nice stride between uh, people that have a lot content for the game and people that have very little content for the game and putting out a product that works for both i think that fantasy flight games succeeded fairly well i just don't think it's necessarily my favorite also julie's not the biggest fan of spider-man and the spider-man rogues gallery i'm more of a fan but there are definitely heroes that i enjoy playing more i do see a lot of the potential in miles morales especially with his venom blast and his ability to a spider camouflage, gain a tough status card and confuses enemies. Uh, tanking damage was a lot of fun as Miles, and he's got some great cards for threat reduction as well as dealing damage. So very well balanced character. Same with Ghost Spider. Uh, the villains are incredibly thematic. They they're a lot of fun to play. I do have to say that the final boss was also a little bit more complicated with a lot of moving pieces. So that was one of the things I didn't really like. There was just a little too much going on, a little bit more than I enjoy seeing in Marvel Champions. Well, there you have it. We're going to cut it here. I think you've got a nice overview as to what we thought about Marvel Champions Sinister Motives. It is definitely a solid expansion and something that you should pick up if you're a fan of Marvel Champions, but it's not our favorite. And with that being said, we're going to remind you to keep playing games. Hello everybody, it's Rob and Anna-Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello! And I am finally back in the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast, as Anna-Marie has been holding down the fort the last couple of weeks. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. My <laughs> not my finest moments. Oh, it was great. Um, <laughs> my voice is still not 100% back. It's still kind of rough, as you can hear, but... He's taking um, one for the team. Yeah, I just need to <laughs> get back into this and try and, you know... Push through. Push through it, yeah. So... <laughs> I figure I'd be able to do this. I'd be able to talk about a game for a couple minutes here because we played a couple different games. We've been both um, 
having nights alone with the kids lately. And um, a few nights ago, it was me and the boys at home. And we played a game uh, called Labyrinth from Ravensburger. And this one is the Pokemon edition of Labyrinth. And so the original Labyrinth came out in 1986, uh, published. And it was designed by Max J. Colbert. And so Ravensburger in 2021 uh, was... Uh, republishing it and put on a pokemon theme on top of it i was curious when um with this one just because it came out in 1986 i was curious if it was from the movie labyrinth but the um no the characters and everything like yeah. the cover they didn't it wasn't an ip but no. it's just interesting judging, yeah, that just judging by the artwork i don't i don't yeah think so. no david bowie no <laughs> <laughs> but you know no it's a cool game so the way it works is you have a seven by seven grid of tiles and on those tiles are going to be uh, pathways, on most of them anyway. And then some of them are going to have pathways and Pokemon on them, individual uh, unique Pokemon. And then some of the tiles on the on the board are actually stationary and they don't move. And what you do is you get a whole pile of Pokeballs, and you have uh, you flip one over to to see which one you need to capture. And what you're doing is you're taking the game board has one extra tile. And you're going to be using that tile to push in uh, into one of the rows, uh, uh, sliding a row of tiles to one side. So up, like down. one piece falls out? Yeah, and then a, uh, exactly a piece from cool. the, the other side will fall off the board. And that will be the piece that the next player gets to use. Push in. To push oh, okay. In. Neat. Yeah, and so what you're trying to do is rearrange the pathways so that you can get your marker. So I would be playing as, say, Charmander, and I'd be trying to get my Charmander... Um, uh, person, meeple yeah. or whatever, to um, to try and capture a one the Pokemon that is dictated by the Pokeball that I flipped over. Cool. And if you're playing a two player game, I believe it's twelve Pokemon each that you're trying to capture, and on the board they're all individual and um, or unique. So you, there's not like two Pikachu out there right. you can go. There's only one that you have to make yeah. your way to do it. Yeah. So you have to adjust the uh, the pathways and uh, shift them around and move them around and try to connect the dots so that you can move your character to that Pokemon. And once you've got your Pokemon landed on that tile with the matching Pokemon that you're trying to capture, then you put that one aside and you flip over a new one and you're trying to get him to move to the next one. And, so your and you can do the same thing. You can go like as far as you can in, in a, yep. as long as it's in a connected path, yep. right? Yeah, you don't just move one at a time. As long as you have a, a connected path all the way, for, you know, four or five tiles away, you can move them all the way cool. over there. And then you wait for your next turn and then... A, the board will have changed a little yeah. bit because you would have pushed through right. um, a tile and shifted something that probably didn't work for me, and then I'd have to rethink about where I'm going to go and how I'm going to how I'm going to push this around. Yeah. It's a really neat little game. Yeah. I didn't know anything about it, and the the boys uh, asked for it for Christmas, I believe. So yeah. we got it for them, and we only just started playing it now. So, and it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it, and uh, it's simple and quick. Oh, sort of quick. Uh, like you can get kind of stumped if, if the things start not going your way. But no, it's a fun one. And the boys really, really liked it. So it's a good one for awesome. the family. Yeah. Nice. What have you been playing? I have been playing with the kids. Uh, Dice Forge, uh, designed by Régie Bonasset and published mm. by La Belou. And this is a, it's a 10 plus game, but I was playing with seven and nine year old. Um, and it's nice and quick. It says 45 minutes on the box. Our two player games were done in like 25 minutes. So yeah. that might be the four player count, but uh, it's, yeah, it's really quick. Uh, in this game, I know we, I'm pretty sure we've talked about it before, but um, you're basically a hero who's just trying to gain the most favor and victory points. And so uh, victory points is the the key to the game. So you every player has their player board and it's got a few different tracks. You've got a gold track, a sun shard track, a moon shard track, and a victory point track. So mm -hmm. just four tracks and you start at zero on all of those. And everybody starts with two die. Now two dice. Now the cool thing about these dice is that they have um, removable faces. So yes. So you start out with, you know, one die has all number one gold and then one sun shard and then the other die has all gold except one has a moon shard a one moon shard and one has a two victory point so you when you're first rolling your dice your dice you're going to get a lot of gold that's just the way it's going to be right so 
uh, on the start of your turn, if it's a two-player game, you get to roll your dice twice. If it's a three or three or four-player game, you roll them once. And you're uh, so you're basically when you're rolling your dice, you're getting your resources. So you roll, you get one gold, you move one gold up your track. If you get a sun shard, you move one sun shard up your track. Um, then once you've done that, you get to uh, you get to go into your next part of the turn where you, ha- you can do one of two things. You can make an offering to the gods by spending your gold. And when you spend your gold, you're spending it to basically upgrade your die faces. So right. you can spend gold to get a die face that might have a three or four gold on it or um two shards like sun or moon shards um some of them might have victory points like higher victory points so you're just you're spending your gold to get better die faces and then you choose which um which die you're going to kind of increase each turn um and you can spend kind of as much gold as as you want the other option you could do instead of making that offering and spending your gold is you could perform a heroic feat so there's um there's a kind of there's a board where you keep all the offerings and they've got all the all the little die faces and they're kind of plastic tile tile ones and it's all housed on one board and then attached to that you've got all the heroes um, or the feats where you're gonna have to go fight these guys and basically to do that you're either going to have to spend the sun shards or the moon shards and there's a cost associated like four moon shards or two sun shards and there are cards in those slots so you can um spend like count yours down your sun shards down or your moon and then you get to do that feat and um once you complete that feat you're going to get that card that uh the guy you defeated and that's going to give you victory points at the end but it's also might give you some instant uh bonuses if bonus effects or some um effects that can happen every turn that can help help you out so you're basically just choosing one of the two for what you want to do um the only other time you might get another action is if you have extra sun shards once a turn you can spend two sun shards to perform an extra action whether that's Right. The gold getting gold or doing a hero feat. But you're basically going until um, the game plays either nine or ten rounds, depending on player count. And they go so fast. You're just rolling your die, rolling your die, rolling your die. They're really quick. And it keeps um, it kept the attention of both kids. Like our oldest was the one who's really wanting to play it a ton. Can we play this? Can we play this? Yeah, I'd heard him asking a lot about it. Lately. Yeah. yeah, and I'm like, oh, I haven't played in a while. I have to refresh in the rules. So I finally did that. And our youngest was like, Can I play? And he was all into it. So um, when we played this before, you and I, uh, our youngest was mm-hmm. not interested at all. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, this time, just that little bit older, he was totally engaged. Loved it. Um, yeah, so that was that's Dice Forge by Libelou. Yeah, I really like that one. Um, yeah. When I saw that you guys were playing it, I was I was like, oh, I'd like to give this one another go. Yeah, it's so, so fun, yeah. just a quick quick yeah. dice checker. Yeah, that's two good games: uh, Pokemon Labyrinth from Ravensburger and Dice Forge from Libelou. So yeah, we're gonna take off, and um, I just did an unboxing video for the Foundations yeah. of Rome game we just got. A large Kickstarter. So if uh, you'd like to check that out, it's on our YouTube channel. The first video to be on there in a while. And, um, and we finally got a new uh, recording out of our podcast. Yeah. And we're going to do another <laughs> Robbie, one here. Rob suffered through it. Yeah. But like we had help with. Uh, we did. Ryan. Ryan, but, Ryan um, came back. Yeah. We're going to do another episode here soon. Uh, all about Dead Reckoning from AEG. So uh, that'll be in the next episode. Yeah. So yeah, we're going to run and we'll see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hello, my name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleOnTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for what you've been playing Wednesday. This week, we crossed a game off that has been on my want-to-play list for a couple of years. Marco Polo 2, In the Service of the Con, by Simone Luciani and Danielle Tuscini. My group and I had all played the original Marco Polo game on Yukata years ago, but never in person. Our memories were vague and along the lines of, I remember it being really expensive to move across the board and all the players' player powers were really powerful. If you know how to play The Voyages of Marco Polo, you'll have a very good grasp on how to play Marco Polo 2. It's still a dice worker placement game where you're using your dice to collect resources and adventure across the land, hoping to be the one who accrues the most victory points by the game end. In Marco Polo 2, players have 5 dice that are rolled each turn. 
On your turn, you can place your dice on any of the action spots. You can go to the books to get resources, earn the con's favor to get coins and camels, which are very important resources, resources for moving, acquire guild seals, actually move, which also allows you to put down trading posts in the city your movement ends on, and acquire more contracts from cities where you have trading posts. Many cities also have an action spot that you can only take once you've placed a trading post in that city. Some action spots require more than one die, and generally the pip value dictates how many times you can perform an action, or an action spot will require a die that has a certain pip value or higher. Most action spots can only be taken by one player, but some action spots will allow you to place your dice on top of someone else's, allowing you to take the action as well, but you'll need to pay coins equal to the number of pips of the dice you're placing. I can't authoritatively speak to the differences between Marco Polo 1 and 2, as it's been years since I played the first one, but I can say that Marco Polo 2, in the service of the con, invoked similar feelings to its predecessor, but didn't incur the same frustrations. Each of our player individual player powers felt equally overpowered, and I felt like I was starved for resources, but not because I rolled poorly, but because I chose to prioritize other actions. If the sum of your dice are less than 15 when you roll them, you're entitled to compensation in the form of camels and coins. There are also free actions that will let you spend a camel to re-roll a die or spend multiple camels to, inc uh, to modify a die pip just by one. I enjoyed this flexibility as it felt less punishing. At the end of the fifth round, the game slowly came to a close and we all turned to the classic Eurogame experience of converting everything we had just to get the perfect combination of resources to desperately try and eke out just a few more points. What was surprising was that the player who was almost 40 points ahead in the first few rounds of the game came in second, as there are some amazingly significant endgame scoring victory points to be awarded. I would play Marco Polo 2 again, there's lots of variability to explore. From 7 different player powers to 25 city action cards that get shuffled and distributed randomly at the start of the game, and a stack of tiles that could significantly change what resources are available for each round. As far as Euro resource management games go, Marco Polo 2 is a very solid game. I also got to play Maglev Metro by Ted Alsbach and published by Bezier Games again. This time we played the Berlin map. This side of the map removes the hub, turning your train line from, a dozen, from half a dozen short spokes all coming from the hub into a single line snaking across the city. I don't know what it is, but I'm not comprehending the puzzle that is Maglev Metro. If you haven't played Maglev Metro, it's a pick up and deliver train game where you have a menu of actions. You start by picking up and delivering robots, copper, silver, and gold, that improve your actions and eventually allow you to unlock workers. Uh, meeples covered in pink, lilac, coral, and purple to pick up and deliver for victory points. The player with the most victory points wins. What sets Maglev Metro apart from other train games is your route is built on clear acrylic tiles. This allows you to stack your route on top of other players, creating an aesthetically pleasing and less confrontational game. No route blocking found here. The gameplay of Maglev Metro triggers my loss aversion pretty hard. With only two actions per turn, the last thing I want to do is spend one of those actions rearranging my robots on my player mat. I would just so much rather pick up and deliver more robots to improve my actions continuously. Unfortunately, there just aren't enough robots to go around, so rearranging your robots on the player board to unlock and improve actions is a must. For some reason, this mechanic rubs me the wrong way. Instead of it feeling like an action efficiency puzzle, I'm left feeling handcuffed and unable to do the things that I want to do. In this game, one player refilled a station to its capacity, pulling out six purple workers when only one other player had unlocked the purple workers in the first place. That player beelined to that, to that location and started delivering those workers to the destination before anyone else was able to fulfill the prerequisites required to ferry purple workers as well. That player ended up winning the game as that was an incredible windfall of points. Maybe it's just luck, but Maglev Metro isn't inspiring me to return to its puzzle. While I don't think I'll be requesting to play Maglev Metro again, I'd play it if someone else was particularly interested. Granted, I've only played it twice at 4 players, and perhaps reducing the player count will re result in an experience I enjoy more. And that's all I have to talk about this week. If you want to hear more of my thoughts on board games or read some more of my board game reviews, you can find them all at MeepleNewMoose.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday! <laughs> Yeah.
Hey there, everybody. This is Norm from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, I was going to go into the uh, what I've been playing lately, but I'm looking at the time on the episode, and we're about an hour, and that's just the perfect time. And uh, it's all right if you don't hear what I play. Uh, you know what? I'll tell you what I've been playing. I've been playing Paleo, which is very cool, about the Paleolithic period, and you're Clan, uh, 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 clans of, uh, of, uh, of communities that are trying to grow through your experience and technology. And, and uh, it's very cool, very cool. And Tyrants of the Underdark, which is a area control uh, deck builder based on the drow uh, um, elves and that dark, that dark shadow feld of the D&D world. So that's quickly, in a nutshell, what I've been playing. But yeah, um, I love to uh, thank you for paying attention to what we have to say about what we've been playing, um, and uh, thank you so much to the content creators. Always, as always, uh, this episode happens because of your generosity and addiction to board games. <laughs> well, that being said, keep your stick on the ice and take care out there, eh? <laughs>